Well, welcome back to our study of the book of Ephesians. Uh, it's beginning to seem to me like we are going through this book at breakneck speed. I find myself getting done with the preparation of a sermon, and then as I read through it, I think about the many other things I could have said about that passage. Uh, I've known pastors who would spend literally years on a book like this, uh, including one who was our pastor in Michigan before we headed to Africa. He had been in Ephesians for three years and was nowhere near being done. And uh, his sermons were consistently at least an hour long. So there are going to be many principles uh, that we will pull out of Ephesians in the future as well, not just in this study, and some of which we won't have even touched on them as we looked at this uh, during the summer. Last week, we worked through the last half of Ephesians chapter 4. We looked at the insistence that came from Paul that we engage our minds in the battle of choosing the new man over the old man. And we ended that study looking at five battlefields where that struggle takes place. And those five battlefields are, first of all, falsehood. We're to put off all falsehood and speak the truth in love. We also looked at selfish anger. We're not to let the sun go down on our anger. Acceptable anger results from hating what God hates. Selfish anger comes with all kinds of consequences. We looked at stealing. We are to work rather than steal. And that work is to be carried out for the purpose of having something to share with those in need. We looked at unwholesome talk. None of this is to come out of our mouths. We're to choose our words with the needs of others in mind that we can build somebody up through our speech. And Paul wrote about bitterness. He contrasted bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice with kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. And I mentioned last week that there was a sixth battlefield that Paul spoke of, and I want to touch on that before we move into the rest of our passage today. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3. We're going to discuss this issue first, and then we'll move into the bulk of our passage. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. It says this, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. If I were to go around the room and list our pet peeves, this would likely be the thing that I'd mention as my greatest pet peeve. But if I was to say anything about this issue, and I'm going to, I know that my words would be met with accusations of not having mastered this myself and being guilty of the very thing that I'm condemning. And those accusations would be justified. I don't have a spotless record in this area. So let's just agree that right now I'm up here so I get to talk about this but not because I'm looking down on a group of people that need to grow up in this regard. I need to grow up in this as well. And as I mentioned before, if I could preach with a big mirror mounted in front of me, I would do it every week. I need to hear these things as much as anyone else does. Uh, a few years ago when I was working in the youth ministry here, I purchased the DVD series of Christian stand-up comedians. 
And I was, it, was a, it was a recording of a comedy festival, and I was so pleased when I saw a couple of the names listed on the DVD. Uh, they were comedians that I had heard before, and I really enjoyed. And so I was confident about purchasing these DVDs to show to our youth and provide them with some sort of alternative humor uh, to the trash that they watch at the theater and on TV. And I do my best to preview whatever I'm going to show others, so that's what I did with this series. The first performance made me laugh hysterically. It was very funny. The second performance I turned off after five minutes. The third performance I turned off. And the fourth one as well. There was no way that I was going to show that material to our youth. Why? For the very reason Paul's talking about here in this passage, because the words of those comedians were improper for God's holy people. And I know this sounds very self-righteous for me to say. Um, I remember the, the enemies that I made in the youth group when I refused to show the commercials at a Super Bowl party that we were having here at the church. The next year, the party was held off-site, and I didn't hold my ground on banning the commercials. And in hindsight, my decision to relax that standard should have bothered me as much as it bothers me when a fellow church member says to me, oh, I shouldn't say that around you, you're a pastor. We get very deceived and very stupid in this area. Paul says we shouldn't tolerate sexual immorality, impurity, or greed, and we agree wholeheartedly those are bad, bad things. But he also says we shouldn't tolerate obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. And rather than jump on our high horses, bringing to mind those people that we know who engage in such behavior, let's take a good hard look in the mirror this morning. Let's agree that keeping our standard just higher than the world's is not what Paul is talking about in the book of Ephesians. Let's agree that it is improper for that kind of language to be spoken in the presence of God, which is not just on church property or in front of your pastor. It's everywhere because God is omnipresent. And this is not an issue of conformity to the law. Don't write this off as legalism when you read this. This is an issue of holiness. Abstaining from obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking is the kind of thing that we want to make us stand out. Our failure to participate in this kind of speech will stand out, and some people in our lives will ridicule us for it. I know what it's like to be made fun of for being a prude. I know what it's like to be the squeaky clean church boy in the midst of trash-mouthed worldly men. Remember that I once worked on an oil crew where I was the only crew member without a criminal record. But that reputation was used by God to sort out the hard-hearted from those that whom God was drawing to himself. And it led to a conversation that gave me an opportunity to share the truth of the gospel, which was worth every word of ridicule that I endured for the things that I chose not to participate in. We are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And we have been called to a higher purpose than fitting in. And when we engage in that kind of obscene, foolish, coarse dialogue that happens around us every day, 
we are forsaking our identity and we are grieving the Holy Spirit of God. We are to lead this world with our words. And Paul says that our words are to be words of thanksgiving. You want to be noticed in the workplace? Are you feeling constrained because you're not allowed by law to preach the gospel at work in this depraved society of ours? Then just do what the book says. Be the person who's known for being thankful and watch what God does with that. And let me say one more time that I, I don't have this mastered. I'm preaching to myself as much as to anyone and that's not to say that I have a potty mouth in the workplace. That would go over real big here in the church office. <laughs> what I'm saying simply takes us back to last week's message. In our minds, we make a decision. If we allow the old man to reside in us for too long and we don't cast off that filthy garment, we will be known by that identity. But if we choose to cast off the garment of foolish talk and replace it, with the new garment, one inlaid with thanksgiving. We're inviting God to do great things through us for his glory. And may God renew the attitudes of our minds daily so that we embrace our identity in the way that we talk. Right, on to today's passage. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to begin at verse 1 now. Ephesians 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 20. This is what Paul writes. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So Paul starts yet another passage in Ephesians with a therefore. And that ties what he's saying to what he's already said. And he's been writing about the new man that we need to embrace. We are new creations. The old has passed away. And all things have been made new. Therefore, act like it. It's a further exploration of what it means to live a life worthy of our calling. He invites his readers to follow God's example and walk in love. Christ's life was a model of what it means to walk in love. And so he points the Ephesians back to that model. Christ gave himself and his reputation up as an offering and a sacrifice to his Father. And we're to follow that example. And then he writes the words that we've just looked at in verses 3 and 4. And after that, Paul begins to lay out the motivation behind living the life of the new man. And there are four motivators that he outlines here. A negative motivator and three positive motivators. Why should we adopt a new standard for our lives? Why should we set the bar for our behavior so high? Well, here's how Paul answers that question. Motivator number one. This is the negative motivator. There's judgment at stake, and it's real. In verse 5, Paul writes this. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now let me make an important distinction here. This verse is not saying that a person who commits an immoral, impure, or greedy act has no inheritance in the kingdom. We do not lose our inheritance when we sin, even in these areas. We all mess up once in a while. We know that. But some of us have allowed sin to reign in our lives instead of just temporarily reside. And that's when that sin becomes worth more than God to us. And if someone allows anything to become more, worth more to them than God, they have become an idolater. Now this was a very relevant thing in the Ephesus context. Um, remember that the people of Ephesus had raised the goddess Diana to, to idol level, to idol status. They worshipped a false god. And this goddess was known, among other things, as the goddess of fertility. So there were unspeakable things done in her name because they worshipped this false goddess. Sexual immorality was rampant. Talk of this immoral behavior had become commonplace. And I'm sure not a day went by in anyone's life when they didn't hear inappropriate comments made relating to this goddess of fertility and, and the behavior surrounding her worship. These worshipers of idols, some of whom I'm sure were in the church at Ephesus looking, to, looking for answers to their questions, needed to hear this. They had to know that judgment awaited for worshipers of anything or anyone but God. And it was a check to the believers that were there that needed to make sure that they were staying on track. This being set apart was a very serious matter, and it should be a very serious matter to us today. Paul then warns them in verse 6. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Okay, was he addressing something or someone in specific here? Yes, he probably was. At that time, the Gnostics had a very big following. And they believed that the things you did in the flesh, the physical things that you did, had no bearing on your spirit. 
You could do whatever you wanted with your body because it was evil. It was given over to evil without spiritual consequence. So the believers in Ephesus were not to partner with the Gnostics at all. They were not to be unequally yoked. The second motivator was a positive one. Embracing their identity as light rather than darkness would bring with it great things. Verses 8 through 14 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That uh, video that you saw during the offering was, was great, and I want to thank Peter for putting that together for us. Uh, it depicted that struggle to resist the darkness and allow light to illuminate what's there in the darkness. The deeds of darkness, life without the light of Christ, are fruitless. The things done in darkness are to be exposed and illuminated, and Paul includes an invitation to those living in darkness that's pulled from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, and quoted here in verse 14. And these verses, like I said, are, the, are, are what made up the lyrics for the song that Peter chose to use in that video. These verses should be a tremendous encouragement to us. They really should. They don't just say that we are living in the light. It's not just our environment that changed when we came to Christ. We have changed. We've changed. In John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But in Matthew 5, 14, Jesus says to his followers, you are the light of the world. And that nature, that calling has been passed on to us as we have passed from darkness into light. A young boy about nine years old went with his parents to Europe one summer. Part of their tour was visiting the great old cathedrals of the past. As he visited cathedral after cathedral, he saw the massive stained glass portraits of the disciples and of other saints. He was so impressed as he stood in these great halls looking through the beautiful stained glass windows. Upon return, he was asked by his Sunday school teacher what about the great churches of Europe he liked the most. And he said, the windows of the saints. She asked him for his definition of a saint. And as his mind went back to those massive, beautiful stained glass windows, he replied, a saint is someone God shines light through. That aspect of our identity and the way that God can use it should motivate us to live it out. The third motivation Paul mentions here for living out our identity has to do with wisdom. Verse 15 through 17 states another contrast between the old and new man. It says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. And there are two assumptions that Paul makes here that we should accept as well. And the first is that as Christ's followers, we are not fools. We are not fools. Wisdom is one characteristic of our identity. And the second assumption is that the wisdom we possess is practical wisdom because it teaches us how to live. 
And what are the marks of wise people who apply their wisdom in their everyday lives? Well, Paul mentions two things right here. First, Paul writes that wise people, that's us, make the most of every opportunity. We know that time is precious. The days, Paul says, are evil, so we seize each day for God's purposes. We acknowledge the potential of each day and, and make the most of that potential. We invest in every passing opportunity. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was a man used by God in the Great Awakening here in America in the 18th century. And he wrote down some of his thoughts in a piece called Resolutions that he wrote just before his 20th birthday. This was the 70th of his resolutions. Never to lose one moment of time, but to improve on it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Now, that makes me squirm just a little bit. <laughs> Seriously, every opportunity, every opportunity. Secondly, Paul writes, wise people understand the Lord's will. Jesus prayed for God's will to be done, not his. Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done. Nothing is more important in life than to discover and do the will of God. God's will, his primary calling on our lives, is found right here in the word, and so... We, the wise ones, study the Bible to understand what he's showing us, just like we're doing right now. Then Paul mentions a fourth motivator, verses 18 through 20. He writes, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does Paul have to mention drunkenness when he's just instructing us to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Because he's talking about influence. One of the reasons Paul wants to see his readers live holy lives is so that they will experience life on a whole other level, life under the influence of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul's already told the Ephesians that they've been sealed with the Holy Spirit when they received Christ. He told them they must not grieve the Spirit, and now he's instructing them to be filled with the Spirit. There are two commands here. Don't get drunk and be filled and both the drunken guy and the spirit-filled guy are under the influence of something. But that's where the similarity between the two ends. Now, in that day, there were many in Ephesus who engaged in drunkenness. Drunkenness was part of their pagan indulgence, and they actually believed that some sort of connections with the deities were made when you were drunk. They believed that inspiration took place under the influence of alcohol. They would abandon control to make themselves available to a higher influence. And that kind of abandon is not at all what Paul's talking about when he refers to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit, so that obviously contradicts itself. Now let me just spell this out if you haven't caught it yet. It is wrong to get drunk. And this is not the only place in the Bible that makes that declaration. Getting drunk is a sin against God, period. And I have a very hard time understanding why so many Christians defend their right to drink 
when drinking is that closely associated with drunkenness? How can it be worth it? Flip side of this is Paul's command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instead of debauchery, unrestrained immoral behavior, which is what drunkenness leads to, look at what being filled with the Holy Spirit leads to. We speak to one another and to the Lord in ways that glorify God and honor others. It's a beautiful picture that Paul paints of walking in the Spirit. Our fellowship is enhanced, our worship is enhanced, our gratitude is enhanced, our submission to each other is enhanced. Paul talks about that in verse 21. Paul says we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is a a continuous command to the whole community of Christ followers. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is something that is going to happen in your lives over and over again. That's what's supposed to take place. It's not something that happens once. You receive the Holy Spirit when you receive Christ. The Holy Spirit's given to us by God as the guarantee of our inheritance. Paul said that when we believed, we were marked in Christ with a seal, and that seal is the person of the Holy Spirit. But experiencing the fullness of the Holy Spirit and His power is meant to be an ever-increasing, ongoing experience as we walk with Christ and grow up in Him in all things. And there's a lot to be said about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And like I said last week, we'll get into that study in the near future. There's a lot there. Today, we need to take to heart this command to be filled with the Holy Spirit as we live out our identity in Christ Jesus. Look at the promised results. I want that. I want to be known for these things. And God's ready and willing to do that filling. It's something we can't do ourselves. On the insert in your bulletin uh, is something that I'll, I hope will help you engage in the blessing of following the command that Paul's given us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Charles Stanley wrote this prayer in his book, Living in the Power of the Holy Spirit, and I offer it to you today as a very positive way to start your day. Why would we start our day like this? Well, because Paul's setting the bar very, very high, isn't he? Think back on what Paul has put before us. He outlined our identity in a very clear manner. We know who we are in Christ based on the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then in chapter 4, Paul begins to challenge us on how we are living out that identity. We're to live a life worthy of our calling, he says at the beginning of chapter 4. We're to be completely humble and gentle. We're to be patient, to bear with one another to maintain unity and peace, to become mature, to speak the truth in love, to grow up in Christ, to not live like the world lives, to put off our old selves, to put on our new selves, to be made new in the attitude of our minds, to put off falsehood, to not sin in our anger, not give the devil a foothold, to stop stealing, to share with those in need, to not let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, to build others up, to not grieve the Holy Spirit, to get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander and malice, to be kind, to be compassionate, to forgive each other, to live a life full of love, to have no hint of sexual immorality among us, to not speak obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, to live as children of light, 
to find out what pleases the Lord, to expose the darkness, to make the most of every opportunity, to not be foolish, to not get drunk, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, to praise God, to always give thanks to God for everything, and to do whatever the rest of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 says. Are you kidding me? (laughs) What was Paul thinking? He might as well ask me to jump over this bar. Yeah, that's going to happen. I can't even reach the bar, let alone jump over it. He set this standard in the word that is so high. It's called living a holy life. It's called living a life worthy of our calling. And yes, the bar is high. And I want to take the bar and move it down to about here. Because I can jump over that. I can do that. And God will be happy with me, right? I jumped a bar. Just not that bar. That's impossible. I can't do that. I can't live out all those things day after day after day. He set the bar so high. On July 23rd, 1993, Javier Sotomayor jumped over a bar this high. This high. Eight feet. He broke the world record and no one has touched that world record ever since. Now, did, did Javier do it through the power of the Holy Spirit? <laughs> no. But the standard that God set in his word is not impossible. No matter how much it looks to us like it is, It is not. Unless we just try and do it ourselves. And then forget it. There's no no possible way we'll live up to that standard. We can't clear that bar. But, Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can, you can live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. It is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I need to know that. It's the life that God intended for me, so it's not impossible. The bar set in Scripture is not too high for us to clear, and so we walk by faith in Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit according to the standard that God has put out in his word for us to see and to live by. I'm going to ask the elders if they'll come now and prepare for communion and the worship team if you'll come back up here and prepare to lead us again. This morning we come to the communion table once again and there's something specific that I want us to remember as we come. The body of Jesus Christ was given for us His blood was spilt for the forgiveness of our sins. 
And through that amazing once-for-all sacrifice, Jesus purchased for us a new identity. He bought back the nature that was intended for us in the first place. We are a new creation because of the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then as he prepared to return to his Father in heaven, he made a promise to his disciples. He promised that he would send them the Holy Spirit and through that, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, through that power, we would do great things. Is that not a generous Savior? We're going to thank him today for all he's done and we'll prepare ourselves for communion as we pray together. Father, we come before you again this morning. Some of us just broken by your word. It's no wonder the word's referred to as a sword. It hurts. God, we're well aware that you have set a standard for us in scripture and Many of us have spent years of our lives just ignoring it. Happy with our own standard, happy with our own setting the bar in our lives and thinking we're doing something great and impressive for you. Some of us have realized that you have set the bar very high. And so we've tried with all of our power to meet that standard, to live that, that holy life, to always do what's right and never do what's wrong, to make the most of every opportunity. And then we fail and we feel terrible for it and we think you must be so upset at us. Father, we were made in your image. And we were given your spirit to reside in us. And Father, I pray right now that we would pursue the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that we're to be being filled with the Holy Spirit constantly. And that spirit has, has just been there unused, unengaged, unchallenged by us in, for years. So I ask this morning that every one of us would stand right now before you and say, Father, fill me with your spirit. You've commanded us to be filled. We're here before you to say, fill us, Father. As we empty ourselves of our old man, as we empty ourselves of ourselves and make room for you to fill us with your spirit. Awaken us your spirit and his power. Give us the strength and the wisdom and the courage and the perseverance that we need to live a life worthy of our calling. Help us to start each day by committing ourselves to you, making ourselves available to be filled by you. 
not by whatever other junk is out there coming at us every day. Let us be the light you have made us to be in a very dark world. Father, we come now to remember your son, Jesus Christ. We come to remember that sacrifice that purchased for us a new identity. Today we lay at your feet everything that we've done that grieves the Holy Spirit, that goes against the standard, that falls short of what you designed us for. And we call on the forgiveness that you offered to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Cleanse us today. Fill us with your spirit. And let us live out the identity that you've given us. Commit ourselves in this time, this remembrance to you. Remembering Jesus in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ.